Welcome back. We are visiting with Joseph Humeyer, a man of considerable expertise and insight, as well as great courage when it comes to matters involving particularly his area of specialization, which is Latin America. He is the founder and president of the Center for Secure Free Society and has been really an invaluable go-to resource for this program and uh, I, I know for many others governmental and otherwise uh, in the United States. And Joseph, I, I, I wanted to specifically ask you to talk about why all of these problems that you worked through with us a moment ago um, should matter to Americans. And maybe just as a case in point, um, country that uh, my wife hails from and that I admire, uh, sadly, it's in difficulty at the moment, I think, big time, and that is Peru. But what it's uh, happening there at the moment at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party with its uh, Belt and Road construction of ports and uh, and mining and so much more, and um, in particular, whether there are real strategic implications for us as a result. Yeah, so I think Peru perhaps is the most strategic country when it comes to Chinese encroachment in Latin America. Mm. They have uh, their presence pretty much everywhere. But the reason I say Peru is probably the most strategic is because it has probably the biggest uh, capability and opportunity for China to have its military naval assets uh, deployed forward uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, we all know about there's a mega port project that's going to be online at the end of this year. It's called the Chiangkai Mega Port, right. uh, about 75 kilometers north of Lima. And Xi Jinping announced that he is going to attend uh, the inauguration of that port if it does come online in November mm. of 2024, which coincidentally would be the, uh, around the time of uh, an election here Indeed. in the United States. So I think we can expect to see things start to escalate or maybe de-escalate into some type of conflicts inside Peru because these are the kind of things that I think precipitate uh, China's uh, involvement or their presence when they start to reveal themselves inside the region. Uh, one last point on that, um, uh, Frank, is if we look at this from a, a Pacific theater, right, like, you know, Indo-Pacific, you know, many people forget that the other side of the Pacific is the Western Hemisphere. And so China, to have a full Pacific uh, theater strategy, uh, they need to have source destinations. They need to have places to land uh, if they're able to invade Taiwan and break the island ch chain of nations, uh, a chain of island nations. Um, in that, I think there's three countries that are probably the most important, um, Chile, uh, mm -hmm. Peru, and Honduras, uh, because all three of them, uh, which have agreements with China, all three of them have the ability to create different uh, port projects for different kinds of naval assets. Uh, Chile has deep water ports that can uh, be useful for submarines. Uh, Peru has the mega port, which would be useful for aircraft carriers. And uh, uh, Honduras, in combination with El Salvador, has the Gulf of Fonseca, which would be used for forward deployed ships. So these are things that we actually gamed out. Uh, I participated in a few uh, exercises with uh, um, uh, the Department of Defense and allied countries, and we kind of gamed some of this out. And these were looking like the most notable countries in a protracted conflict with China if China was able to uh, break into the blue water. Yeah. And it, it, not only... Does it give them a real blue water capability, uh, Joseph, as you obviously appreciate, especially for these war games, but uh, it puts them behind our lines, in effect, uh, in a position to uh, cut the sea lines of communication, as they're called, uh, from places like, uh, you know, um, San Diego, for example, where much of the Pacific fleet is based. Uh, we didn't talk about per Panama in this context, but that's another place where obviously they can exercise considerable, um, well, uh, decisive power, I would argue, uh, over movements of assets from the Atlantic fleet to the Pacific, should that be needed. Um, so all of this is, you know, a clear military and strategic um, concern, but it fits into, doesn't it, this larger pattern of essentially taking offline or maybe bringing into the enemy camp um, this strategic real estate uh, south of our border. I, I actually argue that every country, major country, certainly from uh, the Arctic to the Antarctic is now pretty much in their hands. One exception, though, you alluded to a moment ago, uh, is Javier Millet's astonishing victory in a key nation, Argentina. Uh, he is, of course, trying to salvage 
what he can in that country. Uh, it's in desperate economic straits, which you could talk a little bit about. But uh, he's being buffeted now by general strikes. How is this likely to play out, do you think, Joseph? Okay, so so really quick on the points that you made earlier. Um, no, absolutely. China's encroached on our southern flank. That That is a military positioning that they're looking to achieve, uh, and, and they are achieving it. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say uh, um, you know a Republican President Trump wins the, the 2024 election, and we have a new administration in 2025. He's going to have to contend with a Latin America that's vastly different than the Latin America that he inherited in 2017 when he was first president. Right. He's going to have to deal with a Latin America that's probably two-thirds antagonistic to the United States. It's probably half communist or Marxist, led by Marxist presidents. And in that, he's going to look for opportunities. Um, and in, in those opportunities, the biggest opportunity is Argentina. Because Argentina, not only is it led uh, by a, a probably the most free market president that Latin America or maybe the world has ever seen, mm-hmm. uh, but it's led by a person that has the conviction and political will to actually transform uh, Latin America and his country, Argentina, from the ideas up, like he wants to really bring a, a liberty, not just libertarian, like freedom ideas yes. into the lexicon of everyday Latin Americans. Uh, and it goes way well beyond Argentina. But I think strategically, the most important for the United States is that in order to break what China's trying to do now, you got to think about this from a global perspective, what China's trying to do is they're trying to redraw the world, redraw the map in terms of what they consider the global South, right? They, in, in China's worldview, Mexico is a Southern country, a Southern hemisphere. Nowhere in the world is is that true, but in their map, it is. So how do you break this South-South paradigm that China's trying to impose on the world? Well, you develop a new North-South paradigm. Mm-hmm. And a North-South paradigm would begin with a Northern power, the United States, in a close cooperation and partnership with a Southern power, which could be Javier Malay's Argentina. Yeah. Uh, we had this opportunity with Brazil. We, we let that opportunity pass. Uh, but I think that opportunity will present itself again if we have a strong United States and a strong Argentina. Yeah. Well, let me just focus in on the question of, of the likelihood that um, this time next year, uh, when there might be a new president in the United States, we will still have uh, Javier Millet in power and uh, in uh, very much the Western camp uh, in Argentina. Do you, do you sense that these general strikes, which uh, it appears the labor movement and the Marxists, of course, in Argentina are mounting now to try to stop him uh, before he really gets started, um, might succeed? I mean, they've been trying this since the inauguration day, probably even before the inauguration day. Uh, I've, I've been in close contact with Javier Malay's national security team. Uh, they're very good. I mean, they're, they're some of the best in, in the business, even Close on this God. kind of stuff. Uh, and so uh, we look at the uh, initial uh, big protest that they planned in, in mid-December when he announced his labor reforms to the most recent protest that they just had uh, last week. Uh, they're never in the size, scope, or dimension that the protesters plan. Mm-hmm. They're constantly dismantled. Their disinformation uh, campaigns are constantly debunked. Uh, they're not having the effect that they want to have. That's not going to stop them from trying. They're going to keep trying time and again. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they, they uh, aren't having much success as of the yet. Now, my big concern in this con- in case, and, and I think this is something that Javier Malay's national security team is very well aware of, is the foreign presence, because they're the ones that really can amplify all this. And this is a, a kind of a little known, uh, uh, not so well known, I say, say secret inside Argentina. But one of the biggest Russian presence in the hemisphere is actually in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen this play out before. I've seen it play out in Colombia. I've seen this play out in Mexico. I've seen this play out in Chile, where when you have this huge Russian presence inside their embassy in your capital yeah. city, uh, that leads to robust destabilization. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I'm worried that that may be one of the things that move. Now, the good news here is Russia has a big war that they have to attend to as well. Yeah. So that's not good for, I'm not meaning like good news for the world, but that's for terms of Argentina, it does diminish some of Russia's capabilities. So they're alert on this, they're working on this, uh, and I think that they're going to try to push fast. 10 seconds answer, if you could. Um, is China not also in Argentina with a space program that's uh, yeah. secretive as well? No, China has a big presence as well. Uh, uh, but, you know, Russia's embassy presence actually supersedes China's diplomatic well, presence, which uh, yeah, makes devil, no devil in the deep blue sea. We'll have to have you back soon if we can, my friend. This was fabulous. Come back and uh, in the meantime, Absolutely. go forth Thank and multiply. It's important to say. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. President Biden says he's decided on a response to the Iranian-enabled attack that killed and wounded 30 American troops in Jordan. So far, he's done nothing, but based upon his pathetic performance to date, the mullah's surrogates may suffer inconsequential retaliation. Financial warfare expert Roger Robinson, who helped Ronald Reagan take down the Soviet Union by restricting its cash flow, has a far better idea. Do the same to the Tehran regime's principal sponsor by ending U.S. investors' funding of communist Chinese companies doing business with Iran. As Mr. Robinson discussed with Maria Bartiromo yesterday, his Prague Security Studies Institute found that major U.S. firms like Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock are plowing billions of dollars from American pension funds and other investment vehicles into propping up Iran's military, energy sector, and surveillance state. We must stop underwriting our enemies now. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. We are visiting with Joseph Humeyer, a man of considerable expertise and insight, as well as great courage when it comes to matters involving particularly his area of specialization, which is Latin America. He is the founder and president of the Center for Secure Free Society and has been really an invaluable go-to resource for this program and uh, I I know for many others governmental and otherwise uh, in the United States. And Joseph, I I wanted to specifically ask you to talk about why all of these problems that you worked through with us a moment ago um, should matter to Americans. And maybe just as a case in point, a country that uh, my wife hails from and that I admire, uh, sadly, it's in difficulty at the moment, I think, big time, and that is Peru. But what it's uh, happening there at the moment at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party with its uh, Belt and Road construction of ports and uh, and mining and so much more, and um, in particular, whether there are real strategic implications for us as a result. Yeah, so I think Peru perhaps is the most strategic country when it comes to Chinese encroachment in Latin America. Mm. They have uh, their presence pretty much everywhere. But the reason I say Peru is probably the most strategic is because it has probably the biggest uh, capability and opportunity for China to have its military naval assets uh, deployed forward uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, We all know about there's a mega port project that's going to be online at the end of this year. It's called the Chiangkai Mega Port, uh, about 75 kilometers north of Lima. And Xi Jinping announced that he is going to attend uh, the inauguration of that port if it does come online in November mm-hmm. of 2024, which coincidentally would be the, uh, around the time of uh, an election here Indeed. in the United States. So I think we can expect to see things start to escalate or maybe de-escalate into some type of conflicts inside Peru, because these are the kind of things that I think precipitate uh, China's uh, involvement or their presence when they start to reveal themselves inside the region. Uh, one last point on that. Um, uh, Frank, is if we look at this from a, uh, a Pacific theater, right, like, you know, Indo-Pacific, you know, many people forget that the other side of the Pacific is the Western Hemisphere. And so China, to have a full Pacific uh, theater strategy, uh, they need to have source destinations. They need to have places to land uh, if they're able to invade Taiwan and break the island ch- chain of nations, uh, a chain of island nations. Um, in that, I think there's three countries that are probably the most important, um, Chile, uh, Peru, and Honduras. Uh, because all three of them, uh, which have agreements with China, all three of them have the ability to create different uh, port projects for different kinds of naval assets. Uh, Chile has deep water ports that can uh, be useful for submarines. Uh, Peru has the mega port, which would be useful for aircraft carriers. And uh, uh, Honduras, in combination with El Salvador, has the Gulf of Fonseca, which would be used for forward deployed ships. So these are things that we actually gamed out. Uh, I participated in a few uh, exercises with uh, um, uh, Department of Defense and allied countries, and we kind of gamed some of this out. And these were looking like the most notable countries in a uh, protracted conflict with China if China was able to uh, break into the blue water. Yeah. And it, it, not only does it give them a real blue water capability, uh, Joseph, as you obviously appreciate, especially for these war games, but uh, it puts them behind our lines, in effect, uh, in a position to 
cut the sea lines of communication, as they're called, uh, from places like, uh, you know, um, San Diego, for example, where much of the Pacific fleet is based. Uh, we didn't talk about P Panama in this context, but that's another place where obviously they can exercise considerable, um, well, uh, decisive power, I would argue, uh, over movements of assets from the Atlantic fleet to the Pacific, should that be needed. Um, so all of this is, you know, a clear military and strategic um, concern, but it fits into, doesn't it, this larger pattern of essentially taking offline or maybe bringing into the enemy camp um, this strategic real estate uh, south of our border. I, I actually argue that every country, major country, certainly from uh, the Arctic to the Antarctic is now pretty much in their hands. One exception, though, you alluded to a moment ago, uh, is Javier Millet's astonishing victory in a key nation, Argentina. Uh, he is, of course, trying to salvage what he can in that country. Uh, it's in desperate economic straits, which you could talk a little bit about. But uh, he's being buffeted now by general strikes. How is this likely to play out, do you think, Joseph? Okay, so so really quick on the points that you made earlier. Um, no, absolutely. China's encroached on our southern flank. That That is a military positioning that they're looking to achieve, uh, and, and they are achieving it. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say uh, um, you know a Republican President Trump wins the, the 2024 election, and we have a new administration in 2025. But he's going to have to contend with a Latin America that's vastly different than the Latin America that he inherited in 2017, when he was first president, right. he's going to have to deal with Latin America that's probably two thirds antagonistic to the United States. It's probably half communist or Marxist, led by Marxist presidents. And in that, he's going to look for opportunities. Um, and in in those opportunities, the biggest opportunity is Argentina, because Argentina not only is it led uh, by a, a probably the most free market president that Latin America or maybe the world has ever seen, mm -hmm. uh, but it's led by a person that has the conviction and political will to actually transform uh, Latin America and his country, Argentina, from the ideas up. Like he wants to really bring uh, uh, liberty, not just libertarian, like freedom ideas yes. into the lexicon of everyday Latin Americans. Uh, and it goes way well beyond Argentina. But I think strategically, the most important for the United States is that in order to break what China's trying to do, now you gotta think about this from a global perspective, what China's trying to do is they're trying to redraw the world, redraw the map in terms of what they consider the global South, right? They, in, in China's worldview, Mexico is a southern country, a southern hemisphere. Nowhere in the world is, is that true, but in their map, it is. So how do you break this south-south paradigm that China's trying to impose on the world? Well, you develop a new north-south paradigm. Mm -hmm. And a north-south paradigm would begin with a northern power, the United States, in a close cooperation and partnership with a southern power, which could be Javier Malay's Argentina. Yeah. Uh, we had this opportunity with Brazil. We, we let that opportunity pass. Uh, but I think that opportunity will present itself again if we have a strong United States and a strong Argentina. Yeah. Well, let me just focus in on the question of, of the likelihood that um, this time next year, uh, when there might be a new president in the United States, we will still have uh, Javier Millet in power and uh, in uh, very much the Western camp uh, in Argentina. Do you, do you sense that these general strikes, which uh, it appears the labor movement and the Marxists, of course, in Argentina are mounting now to try to stop him uh, before he really gets started, um, might succeed? I mean, they've been trying this since the inauguration day, probably even before the inauguration day. Uh, I've, I've been in close contact with Javier Malay's national security team. Uh, they're very good. I mean, they're, they're some of the best in, in the business, even nice on this job. kind of stuff. Uh, and so uh, we look at the uh, initial uh, big protest that they planned in, in mid-December when he announced his labor reforms to the most recent protest that they just had uh, last week. Uh, they're never in the size, scope, or dimension that the protesters planned. Mm -hmm. They're constantly dismantled. Their disinformation uh, campaigns are constantly debunked. Uh, they're not having the effect that they want to have. That's not going to stop them from trying. They're going to keep trying time and again. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they, they uh, aren't having much success as of yet. Now, my big concern in this con in case, and, and I think this is something that Javier Malay's national security team is very well aware of, is the foreign presence, because they're the ones that really can amplify all this. And this is a, a kind of a little known, uh, uh, not so well known, I'd say, say secret inside Argentina. 
but one of the biggest Russian presence in the hemisphere is actually in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen this play out before. I've seen it play out in Colombia. I've seen this play out in Mexico. I've seen this play out in Chile, where when you have this huge Russian presence inside their embassy in your capital yeah. city, uh, that leads to robust destabilization. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I'm worried that that may be one of the things that move. Now, the good news here is Russia has a big war that they have to attend to as well. Yeah. So that's not good for, I'm not meaning like good news for the world, but that's for terms of Argentina, it does diminish some of Russia's capabilities. So they're alert on this, they're working on this, uh, and I think that they're going to try to push fast. 10 seconds answer, if you could. Um, is China not also in Argentina with a space program that's uh, yeah. secretive as well? No, China has a big presence as well. Uh, uh, but, you know, Russia's embassy presence actually supersedes China's diplomatic well, presence, which uh, yeah, no devil, devil in the deep blue sea. We'll have to have you back soon if we can, my friend. This was fabulous. Come back and uh, in the meantime, absolutely, go Thank forth you. and multiply. It's important to say. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and I'm very pleased to say we are joined by one of the more important strategic communicators in the Washington environment. Uh, he's actually based in Nashville, Tennessee, where he leads a really important organization, the National Religious Broadcasters. But uh, they have a very big uh, impact here in Washington, fortunately. And we're going to talk about some of the important topics that uh, require not only the attention of the religious broadcasting community, but uh, those of us in its audience. Um, His name is Troy Miller. He is, uh, and you might have discerned this by the seal over his head, um, a former naval person, as Winston Churchill used to describe himself. Uh, He has also been a tech executive. And these days, of course, he runs uh, the NRB, as it's known. We're speaking to him on the eve of its uh, important national convention in Nashville. And uh, Troy, I wanted to visit with you a little bit about um, what should be on the agenda there and uh, what you make of, um, well, not only your own thoughts on the subjects that I think are very, very important, but uh, how important they are to the religious broadcasting community as well. Welcome, sir. Good to have you back once again. Thanks, Frank, for having me again. So I wanted to start with um, the issue that uh, I have to say I'm really uh, increasingly alarmed at what's happening, and that is um, the Biden administration's uh, ever more overt hostility, despite professions of support for the state of Israel, uh, towards the Jewish state, um, including steps that seem increasingly likely to well, it cost dearly, if not to result in its defeat in the present war, uh, in, including, for example, the idea that the U.S. government now thinks the government of Israel must be toppled. How, how is this uh, being looked at by your community of national religious broadcasters? Uh, do you figure it's going to be a feature of your convention? Yeah, uh, you know, Israel enjoys a tremendous amount of support from the Christian evangelical community. Um, matter of fact, when I was just there in December, I heard that over and over again. They surprised that the support they have from conservative evangelicals is more support than they've gotten from sometimes their own liberal 
uh, left partners. And it, and I think, I, I think it's actually all the time. Yeah, <laughs> more. That's, that's right. And actually, that's the the key there. It's it's the far left liberal progressives that are putting the pressure on the Biden administration to, um, uh, you know, kind of sever its support for Israel and to bring a, you know, kind of a harsher condemnation. And it's just amazing because that's such a small uh, portion of the U.S. Uh, population here, but yet they have such a loud voice uh, in the White House and in the in the government. Yeah. And so as with, uh, I'm afraid, Sharia supremacists as well, now mm. represented in senior ranks of the administration and certain quarters. And and you're right, it is disproportionate uh, to their size, but uh, it's definitely having an impact. And and do you sense personally, uh, if you care to comment on this, um, that Israel is being imperiled by some of these policies? I, I, I think it's heading in that direction. I think uh, Israel as a, as a government has held fast to, you know, to their you know cause to their strategy they're not going to slow down does it matter even what happened in you know the recent UN court or the UN uh, recommendation for a ceasefire i think israel knows that israel's life is is on the line here and and so i'm well, i'm I, really i'm really glad that you were there doing a sort of on-site inspection and taking stock of all of that and and i couldn't agree with you more and Obviously, your Israeli interlocutors made the point that uh, the support that the national religious broadcasting community gives uh, to Israel is vital to ensuring that it continues to enjoy the support it needs among among others, Christian evangelicals. Let me turn to another area that uh, Christians are unfortunately um, being hard pressed in, and that would be China. Uh, you and I have talked about this off and on for some time now, but, um, you know, we see the Pope um, doing deals with the Chinese Communist Party to the detriment of, uh, you know, the, not only the Catholic community in China, I would argue, but uh, the Christians more generally, people of faith, really, for that matter. Um, how is China being viewed by your constituency? Uh, you know, we talked to a number of organizations that, you know, you know have global uh, evangelism mission movements and China, the crackdown in China is real. That's one thing people need to understand. It's not something that, that's made up. China really, I think, looks at their underlying Christian uh, population. A lot of us know that the Christian community has grown significantly in China. And I think China sees that as a, as a threat. So Big, I've bigger than from, the Chinese communist party. Yeah. Say. A threat to the party. And I heard from many mission organizations that, that feel that China's moving backwards in, in its approach to Christians and, and shutting down. Now, if you're not, you know, officially approved by the government, they're shutting you down where, you know, home churches had some autonomy for a while. And, and so I think it's serious in China, but I think it's a bigger picture of China's, you know, global ambitions. So, um, and, and what they're doing around the world. So it's not a surprise that they're cracking down on Christianity uh, in their own country. Yeah, well, that's so true. And uh, it's a subject that, again, you know, we've talked about uh, as, as important for, I think, your audience to appreciate as well. It, one piece of this that uh, does not get the attention that it deserves, I think, is this uh, effort that Xi is making not only to, as you say, crack down on uh, those in the Christian community in China, among, again, other faith communities, but he's actually transforming the religion itself. As I understand it, there are now nine commandments because that first one about you know, God is kind of inconvenient when he sees himself as the God. And, and we now have uh, his pictures and uh, the Communist Party trappings uh, inside the churches, in some cases supplanting, you know, Christian symbols and, and icons and so on. This is a very, very important topic. And I'm, I'm so glad that the NRB is, uh, is confronting it and it needs to do more, it seems to me in that regard. We all need to be doing more in that regard. Let me turn to one last topic, if I can, Troy Miller, and that is, much as I know we both are concerned about what's happening to Christians around the world, Open Doors has an annual report that indicates now that there are some 360 million Christians 
who are being heavily persecuted, not just having bad days for their Christian faith, but actually being, you know, brutally tortured, uh, raped, you know, uh, enslaved, or in some cases killed. Yeah, putting their um, life on the line for their faith. For Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, God bless them for doing so. Let me just ask you, sir, there is a growing sentiment that Christians, even in our own country, are now facing growing hostility from the authorities. Uh, Catholics, we were talking about a moment ago, are, of course, uh, now being treated, at least by some in the FBI, as uh, potential terrorists and uh, others of us, you know, possibly domestic extremists and the like. How is the national religious broadcasting community addressing this topic, sir? Well, we've discussed this topic up on the Hill multiple times. The continued weaponization of government, I think, is a top issue, especially in this administration. You know, recently, the stories that came out from the DOJ and from the, from the FBI and other intelligence groups that were gathering information, you know, from banks and credit card processors on people who had these keywords in their, you know, financial transactions. So if you transacted with a company that had Bible in it or Christian in it or faith in it, um, suddenly you became uh, on a list somewhere on a government DOJ list on an intelligence list somewhere as a possible threat to America. I mean, we, we need to get to the bottom of that. What what are these lists? What are they using these lists for? And so we're working to pressure. Uh, folks on the Hill to start some deeper inquiries onto why the government did this. There was no active criminal investigation as far as we know. There were no subpoenas to do this. They simply went out and requested it from these financial institutes and they turned it over. Uh, that's just crazy uh, to think that the government would be looking for that, that, those kind of key words to put people on a list of possible hostiles to America. Right. And, and you know, uh, no less troubling is uh, outfits like Bank of America, I think, prominently is all too happy to supply this information without a subpoena or, or anything yeah. else. L let me ask you a, a sort of related question, uh, Troy, because, you know, this idea that surveillance is being applied is bad enough. But in some cases, we've actually seen you know, arrests made, uh, oftentimes at gunpoint uh, with, you know, large numbers of small children uh, witnessing their fathers being carted off uh, for, uh, well, I think in some cases, basically the offense of praying right. uh, outside of abortion centers or what have you. Um, how does that figure in as you see it? And you're, again, key constituency of uh, some of the most influential communicators in the country? Well, I, I think, you know, the Christian community as a whole, I think, is really starting to wake up and look at this because of these incidents. And they, they, they may backfire from what the government's uh, done. I think they may wake the sleeping giant because recently I, I happen to live in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, which is the town that the, the recent six uh, people who were, you know, quote, protesting at an abortion clinic were convicted just a few days ago uh, under the FACE Act. And uh, all, really, if you, there's video, you can look at what was going on there. Uh, they may have been trespassing. They, they may have been sitting in front of doors, but there was no violence. Nobody was injured. Nobody was hurt. And yet this act has been used over a hundred times against pro-life demonstrators and only four times against the abortion industry uh, supporters uh, who've attacked and vandalized a number of pro-life clinics. So We are out of time. You know the vicissitudes of the hard clock. Yep. Thank you for yours today, my friend. Come back soon, if you would, and good luck with the very important convention of the National Religious Broadcasters and uh, National this month. God bless. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. This is Frank Anthony with the Secure Freedom Minute. President Biden says he's decided on a response to the Iranian-enabled attack that killed and wounded 30 American troops in Jordan. So far, he's done nothing, but based upon his pathetic performance to date, the mullah's surrogates 
may suffer inconsequential retaliation. Financial warfare expert Roger Robinson, who helped Ronald Reagan take down the Soviet Union by restricting its cash flow, has a far better idea. Do the same to the Tehran regime's principal sponsor by ending U.S. investors' funding of communist Chinese companies doing business with Iran. As Mr. Robinson discussed with Maria Bartiromo yesterday, his Prague Security Studies Institute found that major U.S. firms like Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock are plowing billions of dollars from American pension funds and other investment vehicles into propping up Iran's military, energy sector, and surveillance state. We must stop underwriting our enemies now. This is Frank Afton. We're back. It's a distinct privilege to say we are joined by my friend and colleague, Bradley Thayer. Dr. Thayer is, among other things, a member of our Committee on the Present Danger China, a renowned um, professor, an author of numerous books, including most recently with Captain James Fennell, one that will be unveiled, I believe, first formally at the upcoming Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC. Uh, it is entitled Embracing the Chinese Communists. It's a very important study of America's greatest strategic failure. We are going to talk a bit about uh, what all that entails, uh, but uh, Brad, first of all, let me just say thank you for joining us. It's always a privilege, as I say, to have you with us. Uh, Frank, it's my pleasure to join you today. Good. Let me just say, uh, in addition to everything I mentioned, you were also the co-author with um, Captain Fennell of some really important columns each week, I believe, at American Greatness, and I commend those to our audience as well. Brad, I caught up with uh, another of our friends and colleagues, uh, Roger Robinson, who appeared yesterday on Maria Bartiromo's program on the uh, Fox Business Network. Uh, it's must-see TV for people, particularly in the capital markets. And I hope this particular appearance uh, really conveyed an important message to those on Wall Street, most especially. Roger was talking about the fact that at a moment when we are contending with an increasingly aggressive Iran, uh, one that just murdered three of our servicemen and injured another 27 or so in an attack, albeit through one of its surrogates, yes, but enabled by the Iranian regime, to be sure, in Jordan. And the president is still, uh, you know, deciding exactly what to do and when to do it about that. But uh, the bottom line is the Chinese Communist Party, according to a study that Roger Robinson's Prague Security Studies Institute has just completed, is enabling through 40 of its companies traded on U.S. capital markets um, important assistance to the Iranian military, to its energy sector, and not least to the surveillance state, which keeps the people of Iran enslaved. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts, uh, Brad, as a big picture guy, a strategic thinker, a specialist in China, yes, but a guy who thinks about what China's up to worldwide, as we must. Uh, what are we to make of this? Uh, both the nature of what Iran is up to with Chinese support, obviously, but also um, what American investors, most of them unwittingly, are doing to enable it. Well, Frank, it's, it's uh, absolutely important that uh, Roger Robinson uh, has uh, documented that and is publicizing uh, of this event. And Roger, of course, does outstanding work in every respect. And this is simply uh, another uh, one of his uh, excellent contributions to understanding the nature of uh, the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, but also how they work through proxies like Iran. You mentioned that Iran is working through its proxies. Well, Tehran is a proxy of Beijing in this respect as well, that we need to understand that Tehran is not acting in this way, again, through proxies, um, uh, without support from the Chinese Communist Party. And they would not do that if they did not have top cover 
from uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So that underscores, of course, the importance of recognizing that the center of gravity is the Chinese Communist Party as they work through Iran and then Iran as Iran works through uh, its proxies. What Roger has identified, of course, is a symptom also of a larger problem. And that is that um, as Iran is essentially um, working duplicitously to, to uh, uh, essentially uh, through that activity, so many other US firms and entities, Frank, as you well know, are helping out not just Iran, but also uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So it compels us to get our financial house in order. We have to ensure that we need to recognize that it's not 1991 anymore. Uh, it's 2024 and that there are many proxies. Uh, there are many avenues um, through which and by which Tehran and Beijing are going to be essentially acting duplicitously or uh, even with uh, the support, uh, sadly, of individuals like Larry Fink uh, and BlackRock uh, to use U.S. capital uh, to support uh, their aims, aided and abetted to some degree by the Biden administration, uh, of course, but it it's, uh, compels all of us uh, in the United States uh, to recognize this danger and to act accordingly, as well as for all U.S. entities to recognize that they're at risk, yes. right? They're I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and, and Brad, as you know, um, we covered with your help in this book, The Indictment, um, the phenomenon of the Chinese Communist Party and its friends inside the United States uh, to engage in crimes against uh, America, China, and the world, as we put it, um, specifically economic warfare against our own country. Ro Roger mentioned in his conversation with Maria that, you know, these guys are the Black Rocks, the Larry Finks, the State Streets, the Vanguards, and so on, are, are all of the view that as long as it's not illegal, they're going to do it. They're going to put our money, our money, you know, it's not their money. It's uh, pension fund uh, money. It's, you know, exchange traded funds, index funds, mutual funds, and so on. In, in other words, ordinary American investors, by and large, into China. And some of it's going directly to the Chinese military, by the way, which is a problem. But it's also now, as we see here, being passed through to Iranian military and, and other bad actors. And, and I, you've studied this closely, uh, and I know it's a, a central piece of your own new book, uh, Embracing uh, Communist China, that has this underpinning of Americans who seemingly are indifferent to the fact that they are aiding and abetting our mortal enemies. And uh, the idea that it's uh, only because it's not illegal when they're spending fortunes with their lobbyists to ensure that it remains legal to do this kind of thing is not just cynical, uh, but I think it's uh, it's treacherous, if not actually, let's call it what it is, treasonous. Brad, we have to take a very short break. When we come back, I want to talk with you about what we do about this, uh, among other things, on the other side of the short break. Folks, stay tuned. This is really important stuff. Be right back. We're back. Dr. Bradley Thayer is at the house, I'm pleased to say, the co-author with Captain James Fennell of a wonderful new book, Embracing Communist China, which talks about the problem we are discussing at the moment. And that is, we're not simply embracing them, folks. With your money, we are making them into the greatest threat this country has ever faced, bar none. And that threat, which Dr. Bradley Thayer and another of his important books with Lan Chao Han in that case, 
understanding the China threat uh, makes it absolutely clear this is an outfit, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, that seeks the destruction of our country. So what does that make people who are helping them get to a position to do just that? Well, I'm using the T word, traitors. Brad, talk to us a little bit more about um, how this fits into the larger Chinese strategy for taking down the United States, these uh, captured elites, as they call them, and uh, how it is that um, we are, in, as you say, 2024, uh, still turning a blind eye to what they're doing. In, in, indeed, Frank, as, as you suggested in the previous segment, right, it was uh, it, it's outrageous that an individual could say, as long as it's not illegal, he's going to help the enemy. Uh, well, the fundamental problem arises because he does not see the Chinese Communist Party as the enemy, right? But as a partner, as an, in, as an entity with whom uh, he can make uh, even more money uh, while emboldening and, and uh, helping our adversary become uh, stronger. So we have a fundamental problem, and that is much of the elite of the United States do not see the Chinese Communist Party as a threat. They don't understand the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. They don't understand communism, uh, and they don't understand the threat that that poses to the United States. They choose to. They could understand these uh, elements, and indeed they should understand it. And if they choose not to, then somebody should help them along. Uh, that is in you in government uh, and outside of it, Frank, as you do every day uh, through the broadcast to help individuals understand uh, the nature of the threat. So the ignorance excuse doesn't work anymore, right? It, it should have never uh, worked. It did not during the Cold War when we faced the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, it's a way of excusing their bad behavior, odious behavior, treacherous behavior, Frank, uh, as you uh, identified. So because the, CC, the Chinese Communist Party depends on American finance, the actions of these individuals has a direct and negative effect, a deleterious effect on American strategy and the uh, American people. The CCP is determined to kill the United States as the dominant state in international politics, and as many of the American people as necessary, right, to achieve that aims, uh, that aim, as well as our allies, of course, and, and other uh, people of goodwill around the world uh, who look to the United States uh, for leadership. The fact that these individuals have gotten away with this is, um, is appalling, and it needs to be addressed. In your book, The Indictment, you do precisely that, that is that you level the indictment against these individuals so that they can begin to be held culpable uh, 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 for their actions. But we need to recognize the center of gravity of evil in the modern world is the Chinese Communist Party. Reagan identified the Soviet Union in March 1983 in a very famous speech he gave in Orlando, uh, Florida, where he identified the Soviets precisely as that, that mobilized, it energized uh, the American people. And a similar speech uh, given by uh, President Trump or given by uh, other individuals uh, who recognize the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, I think is, is certainly overdue uh, to energize the American people. Let me just drill down on that for a moment, Brad, because uh, we, we did a very important meeting of our Committee on the Present Danger China last week. Um, you were one of the lead discussants in particular on the topic of, uh, so what do we do going forward, uh, given this unhappy state of affairs? And one of the things, Brad, that I, I think was so um, important in terms of a takeaway, and, and you've kind of just alluded to it now, I would argue that long before March of uh, 1983, Ronald Reagan had begun telling the American people about the threat posed by this, he called it evil empire, and the need not simply to, you know, kind of manage it or, or even contain it, but to defeat it, to roll it back. Um, that turned into, with the help, I'm very proud of saying, uh, of the group for whom our Committee on the Present Danger China is named, the original Committee on the Present Danger, then candidate Reagan 
came forward with a strategy to accomplish that. It seems to me that we not only need such a strategy today, and I think our committee is a perfect you know, vehicle for developing it with your help, but also to uh, actually make sure that whoever is the standard bearer in this race, and it should be on both sides of the aisle, it's not likely given the current makeup of the uh, Democratic Party and certainly of the Biden administration, but shouldn't we be making it a very critical election issue, Brad, to see if the American people want to continue down the road of submission and probably extinction at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, or if they want, as with the Soviets before them, the CCP defeated. The historical parallel is a sound one, Frank, as, as you identified. Uh, Reagan was taking on the uh, advocates of detente. You know those individuals well. Uh, he struggled mightily against them within the Republican Party as well as um, among uh, Democrats and ultimately defeated them. Uh, and you were right to anticipate, of course, the March 83 speech was a crystalline moment, uh, but he had been making those arguments and changing U.S. policy uh, in ways that were very important. And well, in fact, so he got a mandate to do that. That's the critical piece. We need such a mandate today. Indeed, he, he did. And he had the American people behind them. The American people were certainly conscious of the Soviet threat in a way that they're not of the CCP threat, uh, at least uh, thus far. One of the intents of the book that Jim Fennell and I wrote, Embracing Communist China, is to call attention to this problem. How was it for a generation we could be captured by the engagers, advocates of the engagement school, like Larry Fink, so many others. So many others. Brad, this is a topic to which we are going to return. We look forward to having a full hour with you and maybe with Jim to, uh, to go through the book in detail when it is published. Uh, thank you for doing it, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. Come back soon. My the pleasure. The rest of you will do the same next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.